process the waveform of my laugh yeah yeah that that fucking waveform like haunts me <laughs> there it goes like, it is. <laughs> and particularly when like because when we first started i did all the editing and then it was like well it's like cats um so yeah that fucking waveform and then the first time that you had to edit i was like see see right. now i just get your little like snorts yeah great. my snorts and the fact that i laugh through my nose i like snigger like uh, that's fun to edit out. So I keep all of those in whenever it's my turn to edit. Me too. <laughs> I like it. Equal opportunity, like chortling. Yeah, it's good. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, any way to like subtly bully each other, like whether it be through like editing or. So we say it's about our guests' research, but actually, you're just here to facilitate our bullying of one another. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like I feel like I um I'm now complicit, um, and mm-hmm. I'm kind of comfortable with that. You both seem like, like you're a good bully. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Having met you for all thirty seconds, I would definitely bully you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, on that note, shall we begin the bullying? (laughs) (laughs) Bullying's great. I'll do the bio, if that works for you. So, professional voice. Hello and welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking professional voice. (laughs) Oh God, what's the dog doing? It's fine. There might be some sounds in the background this time around because this is the first time I've recorded with a dog. I think she's actually chewing something right now. What are you chewing? Oh, for fuck's sake. That's a Sprite bottle. One second. <laughs> Not ideal. <laughs> this fucking dog is such a princess. Like, we live in Glasgow and it rains all the fucking time. And, like, Alex got the dog, like, a couple of weeks ago and literally any drop of rain and it just turns back around and goes uh... home. <laughs> Which in Glasgow, it's not ideal. No, yeah, I imagine it rains a fair bit. I have never been, but I read Shaggy Bane and so I now feel like an expert on all things yeah. Glasgow. Yeah, pretty much. Like everyone else who's read Chuggy Bane, we're all like, oh yeah, like I'm basically a social anthropologist now. Yeah, basically you just read Chuggy Bane and you watch Train Spotting and you don't ever need to come to Scotland. It's amazing. Yeah. That's the central belt covered. There's, there's nothing else really. There's nothing else, no. Yeah, it's fine, it's fine. No, Bane is like just fun in terms of like pointing at the street names, like, oh, I know that one. Oh, I know that one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I have opinions about Shaggy Bane, though. I've not read it. Mm. It was kind of aimed at the booker. But every book that wins the booker is aimed at the booker. True. They like target practice, but they like they carry the target around and sort of just catch any of the darts that land. Yeah, but it just it annoyed me when I was reading it because I just found it so blatant. Like, mm. and it just... It's like Oscar bait, but booker bait. Oh, totally. Like, yeah. that fucking... It's like how cats... Like, I think the actors in there thought it was Oscar bait, but then it turned into a fucking... Golden Raspberry. Yeah, Golden Raspberry. <laughs> like, I love those films that, you know, like, that the actors think that they're really in for the Oscar, but it's just awful. That I find that with Shuggy Bane. I mean, there's some, there's some really harrowing stuff about Shuggy Bane, but, like, the dialect was a little bit more comprehensible than it should have been. It wasn't quite right, and it was just... Oh, yeah, I, I had opinions, um, but it, it was it was fine. <laughs> that's the ultimate opinion it was fine it did things for the scottish literary scene <laughs> things <laughs> yeah. Yeah. we're all literary critics we can all articulate things i'm kind of hoping that anyone who listens to the podcast understands what i know about things and the layers of thing 
I certainly think they were. Yeah, thingness. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally have a PhD. It's fine. I was going to say, though, like with a PhD, you should know that the thing is definitely a thing, right? Object-oriented ontology. Come on. (laughs) I love when you see object-oriented ontology and things because it's just like, ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Which I I am not over because I'm a child. I love anything in Timothy Morton stuff, which I fucking hate. Don't care if he listens to this podcast. (laughs) He probably doesn't. If anyone else does who is in the same circle, hate him. There was definitely like one of his books which is all about you know object-oriented ontology as being like the way forward through the anthropocene and it just kept having these like little three o's like ooh, and it just felt either like a really big pause or like there was some, like a shit ghost in the book yeah, i know you're writing about the anthropocene but you know ooh, ooh. doesn't make it ominous maybe the three o's are intended for like if he was speaking it was like a speaking event Every time he says mm. it, the audience all go, ooh. <laughs> yeah, it'd be like interact. I mean, I'm now thinking about getting into object-oriented ontology just for that ooh. one reason. <laughs> object-oriented ontology be like bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favourite things. Sorry, we were introducing you and then we're introducing you got you. very distracted. This happens a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try it again though. Okay, are we all ready? I don't think the dogs are eating anything right now. Quick, okay. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Lol My Praxis. This week we are speaking with Chelsea Haith, a DPhil candidate at the University of Oxford at Wolfson College. And we are here to chat with her about whether machines are funnier than our podcast. Chelsea's current research focuses on urban inequality, speculative fiction, and decolonial theory, and she's broadly interested in how narratives inform and shape the future. She's currently the PI and founder of the network Futures Thinking, a project that draws together sci-fi, AI, and ethics to imagine a world otherwise. Their main research question considers how not to ruin everything. As part of the project, she released a Narrative Futures podcast where she interviewed some super cool people about how speculative genres might save the world. We don't think she's a machine, but we are still waiting for peer review. Welcome to the podcast, Chelsea. Thank you for having me. That just totally derailed our first question, which is, firstly, <laughs> are you a machine? <laughs> so I get that question a lot because I am, like, hyper-productive and people are like, wow, like, how do you get so much shit into the world? Like, I have, like, a whole bunch of part-time jobs and I do this, like, extra thing and I'm the PI on some stuff and I'm just, like, a defil, but then... I also like have these like other things and and then I publish like I don't sorry I don't pub, I don't mean publish like like referable I mean I post things on Facebook um <laughs> people are like, wow you're so busy when do you sleep oh, you're so prolific <laughs> I was I was having flashbacks to that whole Twitter argument about you know the academics like I wrote 75 books in a year like. <laughs> yeah so I publish like 75 tweets and people are like wow you're so prolific you're just such a machine and uh yeah when I was a kid people used to be like uh, dictionary girl like like machine girl and yeah I have to be like I am a real person and so now I've gone like the other way and I tend to be like more like a person than people are which can (laughs) (laughs) because like no one is actually a person right people are all weird everyone is weird (laughs) (laughs) maybe I've maybe I've read too much sci-fi no but keep going I I completely interrupted for the sake of a cheap joke (laughs) 
It wasn't a cheap joke. It was really sophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> but, but go with this. Like, what do you mean? Are we all with? There's no personhood in in terms of sci-fi speculative world. No, I absolutely think that there is personhood. I think there are some interest. I mean, there are some interesting questions being posed in like the posthumanism space, where people are saying mm-hmm. like, "We're already posthuman. Like, I wear glasses and I like had my tonsils out. So like, I'm am I kind of posthuman?" Yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> weirdo. Um, yeah, I, did, I taught some post-humanism this year, and at one point in one of my seminars, I was talking about exactly this, and rather than talking about the glasses that were on my face, I was like, yeah, I've got a coil. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to get my coil, so I'm going to be even more post-human than that. Sorry. Right, yeah, great. You know? <laughs> and it was also the, 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 the week after we were talking about sort of like non-reproductive futures, and I was like, let me tell you about my coil again, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking wonderful. Any excuse to talk about your uterus. Exactly. It's wonderful. I think I've got a couple of episodes that talking about vaginas. And frankly, I'm not here for it. I'm, I'm happy we're back. <laughs> <laughs> back on track. Back onto our brand. <laughs> yeah. Well, the last chapter of, um, of my thesis is about reproductive futures um, in like mm. apocalypse narratives. Uh, and so there's a little bit of like Sophie Lewis stuff and a little bit of gestational commune stuff. But mostly I'm just like... Living in cities is dangerous for people with uteruses, but also living not in cities is dangerous for people with uteruses. And so I think what I'm concluding with is that living with a uterus is dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I'm a little bit nervous because I think if my examiners are women, they're going to be like, this is an original, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> we know. Try again. <laughs> yeah, but then there's, there's also the space of like, oh, but has they had me realize this yet? So, and the answer is probably still no. So in that case, it is still original. <laughs> Just turn it around and be like, you know, you talked about you to us. What about you to you? Mm. <laughs> so it's for future research there. Um, exactly. I'm going to exactly. focus my uh, postdoc work on uh, you to you. Yeah, you. it's good. Yeah. Yeah, you. That'd be great. <laughs> what was it? We were talking about one of the kind of reproductive futures and oh, we were talking about gay frogs, right? And the fact that... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Louise's face what so this is the whole sort of like conspiracy theorist thing that is actually also kind of technically true in terms of oh I, I have heard of this but please go right. on so yeah so what's his name Alex Jones he brings a bad name to all Alex's but the weird right-wing conspiracy nut pretty sure he co-founded Infowars or something else like that but anyway so he has this whole stupid meme about like the water's turning the frogs gay and that this is a bad thing. The reality is, is that the high amounts of pesticides and plastics and toxics that are kind of like seeping into the environment are actually, yes, they are creating kind of like interesting sexualities and gender swapping frogs and frogs who are, quote, turning gay. I've gone completely off track. It's been a while since I've, I've done this research now. But why was I talking about this? Oh, reproductive futures. That's why. Okay. Gay frogs. I'll cut that. And if I'm editing, I won't cut that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got, I'm, I'm looking forward to it because it was part of a course on futures, which is why I'm so excited to be talking to you today because your research sounds super cool. And basically, I had an email last week from a student who was like, can I write about lesbian newts? And I was like, um, 100%, you can write about lesbian newts. Thank you, please. Uh, that would be great. If this is a survey course on Victorian literature. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but like I watched, like, I watched The Road recently because I had to teach it. I think the first time I ever watched it, I was like, oh, Charlize Theron, what a bitch, what's she doing? Like, how dare she just walk out and abandon everyone? And this time round, I think after a year of the pandemic and after 
a way of like studying all these things about reproductive futurity. When she walks out, I was like, fucking yes. <laughs> I understand your choice to just like walk into the snow harder than anything ever. And actually fucking Vigo Mortensen, who's like, no, we need to have a baby. Shut the fuck up, Vigo. Anyway, that was a really long ramble and rant. Cut the cord. Are we human? Or are we enhanced by our contraceptive devices? Should I do the jingle? Yes, do the jingle. <laughs> okay, so I don't know if you've listened to us before, but we like to curate a jingle for our guests. And uh, I've gotten away with it for a good few weeks because my partner destroyed my kazoo. But then Alex got me a new kazoo and it's engraved and everything, so I can't fucking get out of it. <laughs> <laughs> um so, I'm gonna be. Can I just pause for one minute before the kazoo? Because the dog's come back with something on her face, <laughs> and I worry that she's gotten into the flower, <laughs> or that she's a cocaine addict. I'll be back in one second. One eternity later. Okay, we're back. It was icing sugar. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, but I got there just in time, and I realised why she's being a dick is because I I haven't fed her. <laughs> I forget that her meal starts promptly every day at 6.30. <laughs> so anyway. My dog is so thick. You have to ask her if she's hungry. And then mm-hmm. she'll be like, oh my God, now that you've mentioned it, yes, yes I am. <laughs> it's the same time every fucking day. And the cat's going fucking mental because the cat knows everything. Anyway, it's just deferring the inevitable kazoo. <laughs> Please go ahead. I think that'll be the last interruption. Lol. <laughs> This is awful. That was the backing. I feel like the timing's off. <laughs> Maybe it is, because I don't fucking know, and I don't like the band. <laughs> I feel like you've done like a weird, like a waltzing version of this song. Fine, I'll speed it up. <laughs> version <laughs> too fast i didn't actually i did slate you when you were doing the kazoo quite a lot <laughs> excuse me you slate to be every episode uh chelsea thoughts any thoughts at all on what on what i'm listening to uh the kazoo and the dog's like wrong <laughs> shut up that there's a person who lives outside and that is allowed <laughs> Okay. Okay. And any thoughts of what the song could be? No, not, no, can't tell you. What if I told you if it was about a year 3000? Oh, is it the song Year 3000? Yes. Oh, God, I'm so good at this. It was supposed to be that. Um, so, can you tell us why that's relevant to your research? My research is on the future, uh, which is an awkward thing to say to a group of people when you're at Oxford and no one works on anything older than Virginia Woolf. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's not fair. Some people look at stuff a little bit later than that. But yeah, we're we're trying to put a little bit more uh, contemporary into the modern and contemporary uh, bits of of Oxford and... uh, um, and it has it has been a struggle, but we're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah, so I work on the future a little bit and also like on the past, but like speculatively. So like how we think about dystopia and utopia um, and like utopian studies and theory and stuff contributes to social critique. Mm-hmm. And when we cast forward into the future, we typically imagine better or worse worlds and like what do those 
what do those tell us about the social anxieties of the present? And mm-hmm. usually the, the answer is that we're super fucking anxious, which I totally identify <laughs> with. So, yeah. Praxis. That's super interesting. But we want to uh, dial it back and ask you for a boring fact about yourself. A boring fact about myself? Mm-hmm. Because we hate the construct of... Oh, tell us something interesting. No. Be interesting. Uh, perform. <laughs> I have worn glasses since the age of 16. It's actually quite late. That is, uh, yeah, nice. And they're very, very nice frames that you have right Thank now. Thank you. Yeah. Someone remember. described them to me as a cross between a manic pixie dream girl and a librarian. And I was like, that is actually my whole aesthetic. So, <laughs> thanks. Zoe Deschanel at the British Library. I think. I mean, I did take it eventually as a as a slight, but um, you know, <laughs> the person who said it's a dick. So yeah, there's certain people where you're like, any comment on my appearance, even if it's nice, I'm not taking it from you. Because... <laughs> <laughs> so wait, are you telling us that you've only been post-human since the age of 16? No, I had my tonsils out when I was three, so I would say it started around then, because oh, there's okay. like medical nice. intervention at that age, I think definitely counts mm-hmm. as post-human. I think that's quite a big claim, like, I was post-human before it was cool. Was <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's like, there's different kind of senses of what it would mean to be post-human, and like, people have very different views. Like, I think the push towards thinking about humans as animals in like mm. post-humanism studies is, is like quite important because it helps with thinking about the Anthropocene. Ooh. And um, Ooh. I, yeah, I think it's really important to like recognize that we are animals. And so if, if we take the technological tech bro, everyone's gonna have, I don't know, like lasers mm-hmm. coming out of their eyes or like be able to see people's Facebook profiles on their retina or whatever out of the equation, then we start to think a little bit more productively about what we're doing to our planet and like if we change how we think about our species then like maybe we won't be so shit i mean that's the dream that's the hope right because i I think that's a really key element of post-humanist thinking is this idea of well who has been historically relegated from that category of human right who has not been able to enter into that and that's normally it's interesting you bring up the the, kind of the animal um comparison there or the animal animal studies kind of framework in terms of how animal studies is also itself subtended by like people who have been relegated to animals rather than as human and vice versa and stuff like that so it's kind of like there's a lot of interesting stuff coming from post-humanism the only thing i keep going back to is the text I taught at the end of term, which is a part of uh, Don Haraway's Companion Species Manifesto, which starts with her making out with her dog. And I just think everyone needs to read it. It's great. My favorite is Derrida's cat as well. I love Derrida's cat. Oh my God, it's so good. Every time I teach Derrida, I have to preface it with, he's like a little bit sexually uncomfortable around his cat. And I'm really enjoying that part of this conversation is continuing with a cat in video. Yeah, she just decided that, because we were talking about animal studies, that she needed to make herself known. Yeah, not just talking about post-humanism, but talking about hierarchies of species. This is the epitome. This is the top, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> That's what so we've done. We've come back to pussy. Yeah, always, oh, yes. always. Oh, still back on brand, always. On brand. <laughs> Speaking of pussy. Did you have a chance to think of a Tinder bio? I did. Um, so, <gasps> tell it, tell uh, it. I've got it. it. I've got it written down even. So, institutionally promiscuous gold digger looking for an industry that wants my labour, not my life. 
Oh, oh. literally an ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I've been I've been at four different unis since my undergrad. Uh, not mm-hmm. since my, I mean, including my undergrad, I guess. And this DPhil is my fifth degree, technically, because South Africa has a totally different um, education system. Well, not totally different, uh, but like sometimes different, a little bit. Um, and so I've mm-hmm. got some honours degrees that like aren't a thing anywhere else in the world, except like also in Scotland <laughs> and, in, and in Australia. But like here they're like, what is that? And I'm trying to explain it anyway. So yeah, so institutionally promiscuous because I like don't stick to any one institution. Gold digger because I'm like perpetually uh, applying for grants, but like aren't we all? And uh, yeah, the whole <laughs> labor not my life thing is pretty self-explanatory given recent events. I would just kind of go ahead and say that I would automatically swipe right because I think that is one of the most bluntly truthful <laughs> Tinder bios we've ever had. <laughs> it's like, yeah, this is my life, but it's not going to be. Fuck you all. I'm applying for grants. Yeah. Pay me, bitch. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's basically it. Yeah. Well, I, I have a particular skill in writing bios because I worked at Bumble for oh, a period of time. Uh, my master's finished and then I had like three weeks and then my PhD started, but the, my funding didn't cross over. So I needed to live mm. and eat in between. Yeah. Uh, love, love, yeah. yeah, for the like the last like three months of my masters and the first three months of my defil i was up at like five in the morning to catch the american swiping i guess and worked customer support at bumble yeah oh wow that was okay awesome <laughs> so what kind of stuff was it sort of people being like um i'm really having a problem no one is contacting me uh first <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i'm not contractually allowed to like share the goss um but yeah i dealt with some really interesting stuff so for a while i was in content moderation which is like moderating dick pics and then like that is a dick that wasn't like needed or necessary and then like sorting that out and then i moved over to customer support where yeah like and it's like normal like retail customer support like where people are like oh i've accidentally bought this thing and i don't want it but there can sometimes be uh yeah some like really uh interesting people because it's like people's love lives and people are really intense mm. about that like it's the thing that people care about sex so yeah yeah oh okay well on that point um can machines love oh no i think that i think they're fundamentally incapable because they, oh. they hate us mm-hmm. and it's because we have built them and like overworked okay them. but that doesn't mean they have to i mean when i said love i didn't mean love us like can they love each other oh, they can love other point. things yeah. Can they love themselves or at least learn to love themselves? Only if we program them to. It's like the ultimate question of like programmer's bias, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I work a little bit with this thinking about um, my Sound of Contagion project. We've like plugged a whole bunch of uh, pandemic texts into an algorithm and it's spit back loads of stuff. And then we've turned that into a narrative. But what, mm-hmm. what I got from the output was that most of the characters were men. So I had to write a woman into the narrative. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, somewhat inevitably. Um, I mean, the data set is like drawing from literature. So of course, it's going to be like chocker with men. So yeah, if if we write biases in, then we Mm -hmm. can teach them to like, love, right? 
I mean, we well, like, what is love, right? Uh -huh. Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. <laughs> I was thinking exactly that. What is love? <laughs> but yeah, if we can write prejudice into an algorithm, which is what you do when you don't tell the algorithm anything about the person that's written it, basically, which is why we have like problems where, you know, the, like stop and search tech um, is so dangerous, which is why someone like Joy Buolamwini is so important because she's like working on how facial recognition software just doesn't recognize black women because it wasn't trained on black women. So that's like super important in this. And you've got to write bias into your algorithms to get them to, to write it out somehow. So you kind of got to go, okay, I know you're not going to clot women. So I need you to now clock women and bring them up to meet the programmer's bias, essentially. Are we saying then that love is just a form of bias? I mean, I think so. I'm biased. <laughs> <laughs> oh, totally. I mean, I think book have preferences and there's a reason why you fall in love. And it has nothing to do with biology. <laughs> it's all our programming, yeah. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. Freudian psychoanalysis begs to differ. So what does contagion sound like? Can you hear me? Uh, uh, is it? Oh, man. Uh, am I on mute? No, you're on mute, mate. You're on mute. Come off mute. <laughs> Slamming doors. The silence of the city. We've got a little bit of like field recording that will go into the project. Um, yeah, so like part of the work that I do on Sound of Contagion is I'm kind of a librettist and we've got some like really interesting music that's come out of what we've been working on. You can listen to it on YouTube um, if you just Google bandwidth Rob Laidlow and Rob is our composer. And you can have a listen to like what that bit of the three layered um, narrative sounds like i've had so some of the some of the if you type in if we kind of we prompted the um the algorithm with it sounded like uh, in one of the instances and it it came with it came back with all sorts of really fun stuff which um i can pull up and, and read to you so we've got it sounded like feces um, <laughs> and i want to know what exactly that means because i don't it doesn't give much description it just kind of comes out with this statement it sounds like feces and that's the product obviously not the process yeah, exactly. So it's the algorithm is essentially just picking a noun or or a concept um, and inserting it there because something can just sound like something. So like what what we're interested in in that moment rather is what the algorithm is doing with the language choice rather than what the pandemic actually sounds like. Um, some other mm -hmm. ones that it gave us was it sounded like uh, like the gunshot, not a gunshot, the gunshot. It sounded like an awful vision, wasn't it? Like the sight of one of those halogen bulbs. <laughs> It sounded like someone gravely pointing at you. This is just a poem. Yeah. This is just contemporary poetry. Yeah. I'm also pretty sure that I've read. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've probably seen it at a poetry slam. Well, probably, yeah, yeah. Snaps, snaps. And I think as well, because like, I, I was spying on your website and there's the signs of contagion. So you've, you've got the narrative that was written by the AI. And similarly, I feel like I've read that before for the PR text. I think I find it so, I mean, obviously this is a whole. Is there a sense that AI is a better writer than someone like, you know, E.L. James of Fifty Shades of Grey? Is AI a good writer? <laughs> um, not yet. This like also poses some interesting questions about what we, like how we value different kinds of writing forms and styles and genres and stuff, because so Marcus de Satoy, who's based here at Oxford, is like a science popularizer. And he's done some interesting work on like what AI can and can't do. And so lots of people can't differentiate between a, um, a Rembrandt that was kind of recreated by inputting lots of Rembrandts into an AI and an actual Rembrandt. 
uh, and, and like people, some people can't tell who's the human and who's the AI creator of certain kinds of poetry, for example. But AI can't write novels. Like we just heard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as we've just heard. But AI can't write novels, and that's kind of the place that we're at. So no, AI isn't better than E.L. James because E.L. James has written a book. Mm, is it a novel? Has she though? Has she though? like the question of fan fiction, right? And like, what's the value of fan? <laughs> but um, yeah, is it a manual? It's kind of a manual, isn't it? Kind of, and then it's kind of like yeah, because it's Twilight fanfic, and then yeah. into a this like because I, I have read the first one because um, I was working at Penguin Books at the time, and obviously it was published through Hodder, I think it was. It was a different publisher anyway. But like everyone in the office was fucking raging that they hadn't seen the like possibility of shitty erotic fiction so everyone was reading it and raging about it just like it's so shit it's so shit but obviously the sales were right up so it was a really good time to be in a publisher's office mm. where, like a, a rival publisher's office then that was, like the shit hit the fan with that so why do you think I mean, obviously, this is this is very maybe philosophical, maybe like sciencey question, but like, why do you think novels are just beyond the machine? What is it about like novel writing? Do you think? Obviously, there's no real answer for that. I think it's because authors are endowed with special souls. I don't know. It's about sustained narrative. Ooh. I think it's about narrative. Is which kind of brings me back to my fluffy like authors have souls thing, um, which is about like we as human beings tell stories like that's why literature is so important to us speaking i'm just going to speak on behalf of you guys please you do. Know, literature is super important to people um who work in it uh because it pays the bills um and also because it's like a lot of people's lifeblood like intellectually and like spirit spiritually maybe and that has to do with storytelling and with how we talk about our experiences in the world and machines don't know those yet i don't think that that means that they can't i know that Kazuo Shigeru is like pals with one of the guys at DeepMind and he was saying um, I'm just going to name drop the real quick saying at a dinner in 2019 <laughs> yeah that he was like talking about what the possibilities of a novel written essentially by DeepMind Tech like were but he was also like a bit busy with his recent novel so I think it's like pretty interesting in terms of how we talk about narrative and what narrative is for and what kinds of narratives matter because we know about, I mean, we, yeah, they kind of talk about genre and form and like, is, is prose poetry a narrative of some kind? Well, no, it's not because it's prose poetry, but what does, what does the novel have that makes it so special? Oh, wow. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> the dog has zoomies now. I'm so sorry. I want you to know that up until this moment, she had been sleeping solidly for five hours. <laughs> I've been turning around and my house is a fucking mess. <laughs> she has a little moose that is no longer a moose, but is just a sausage because she tore off all of its limbs. <laughs> and it seems that she has been running around with that um, across everything. Sorry. <laughs> I quite like though, that this kind of post-humanist discussion is always being interrupted by animals. I think this is very on brand. Mm. That's very on point. Yeah. One thing that I find intriguing by AI is that we're always asking them to read, but we're not like, do they want to read that? You know, like we're making them read a lot of real shit and lots of forums and feed them data sets that, like you say, are just full of white men. Like, I don't want to read that. Why are we making an AI read that? It's so sad. Yeah, well, it's what we're defining the data set by, right? Like, if we gave the AI, yeah. I mean, this is this is the other thing. Like, we could just give the AI poetry by black women and be like, 
like what do you make of that like that isn't necessarily boring so I think it's about how we choose like it's and that's what I mean when I say like when we think about the bias that we're writing into the data um Mm -hmm. like who's choosing the data set that's also like a really important aspect and that's something that we think about with sound of contagion is like I chose the data set and I edited not the data set obviously but the some of the outputs so that they were coherent Mm -hmm. in some ways and left some of the nonsense in yeah it it yields some interesting results as i lay there contemplating late capitalism i couldn't help but wonder was he a love machine or did i just love machines and if i were a hopeless technophile could a machine be programmed to love or were my feelings just artificial intelligence I don't know if I even want to bring her up because she she wrote the book about women and data and then turns out that she's kind of turfy but yeah um Invisible Women by that's it Caroline Criado Perez that's it because mm-hmm. like some of it was quite interesting but then it was like oh but there's this turfy narrative underneath it I didn't know about that yeah yeah it was annoying because it was quite interesting in oh, ways yeah. like I mean because mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, there are far more issues than gender um, when we think about like the way the society structure and things like that. But is there? I mean, you, you've actively sort of worked on making sure that women's voices are there. But you know, how can engaging with data? What are the possibilities for making sort of society more intersectional? Like, how how does data become intersectional? Uh, which is a horrible question. Oh, I don't think it can, um, because if you you need you need so much data for certain kinds of projects, and you're you're inevitably going to leave some data out, right? Or data sets out, or bits of data out that that it can't that it can't be. Um, it's kind of the how do you demix a cocktail thing? Like we're 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 stuck in our we're, like we're stuck. And we're resistant. It's just so pessimistic. Maybe it's because it's seven o'clock. <laughs> and I'm just like, I just, there's no, what are we doing? There is no point to anything. But um, <laughs> all this work that we do to resist the, you know, these structures that we live our lives in may come to naught. But I think, yeah, it, it can't be, it can't be intersectional because our, like, our, our material isn't, right? You can you can construct a data set that is intersectional and representative, but you will have to log that you've left certain ideas out. Yeah, so is that how we can sort of maybe look at speculative fiction away from that? Can, you, can speculative fiction open doors to intersectionality? Yeah, it's like an alternative to a data set in some ways. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, if, if you... And maybe this is one of the, the effects of thinking about data sets and and questions of intersection intersectionality and and and, um gender and class and race etc if we shift away from data towards narrative right which is what specfic does you know there's the there's the singular well not a singular story but there are there are personal stories and those are the ones that we use to build empathy and think about what is it like? What is it like to live in a world underwater? What is it like to be able to move through black doors to anywhere in the world? What is it like, you know, what is it like to have, I don't know, like a demon familiar in Johannesburg, right? In Lauren Bjerke's novel, um, Sioux City. Like, what is it, 
you know, what is it like to live in a world where, you know, 99% of men have died? Oh. <laughs> oh, sad. So sad. Yeah. Not all men, just the one percent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting, right? Because there's that there's that classic. Um, I'm thinking of the Jameson phrase, right? Where it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Yeah. So, do we think, in some ways? that's the job of speculative fiction to try and imagine outside of capital and capital's kind of constraints and structures or do we need an ai to do that like will ai solve our capitalist issue probably not but maybe i don't know oh i don't know i don't think so again because who's who are the programmers right mm-hmm. like, Elon musk what fuck? yeah exactly um like who do we yeah who are we choosing to to like to build these systems and even if we do choose good people to build these systems that doesn't mean that they aren't complicit or in like like mm-hmm. interpolated in the system. I saw this this of the like thousand or so people who are like execs at Goldman Sachs, only like 49 are um, of color. And I was like, yeah, they're still assholes though. <laughs> <laughs> like it's still Goldman Sachs. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, well, I don't know. Like, how do I feel here? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a little bit like the master's house, the master's tools kind of question mm-hmm. so yeah but then again like is the so your question about like can specfic like what is the job of specfic and i just don't think that it has one i don't think that it one writers don't take orders <laughs> if only that could just make their narratives fit my theory um, oh my god that'd be so great <laughs> right. i think all the time about poetry i'm just like could you just like write me a poem that would fit this argument thank you that'd be really helpful yeah. unfortunately all my authors are dead so <laughs> <laughs> Like, there's a lot of theory about this, and I, I'm, like, not the person mm-hmm. to rehash it, but spec fic and science fiction and fantasy have long been vehicles for social critique. And and that can be for good or bad, right? Like, like Robert mm-hmm. Heinlein is a, like, was the original space fascist. Like, he was, there was, there was, you know, social critique, but not going to the left. Yeah. <laughs> I love this B-movie title that I've got in my head. It's just, like, fascists in space. Like, I, I, I watched that. <laughs> You're right, right? Because there's a. Uh, I'm thinking now of like not necessarily the kind of classic speculative fic and sci-fi, but the actual just contemporary futurist narratives that we get getting thrown at us every day. In terms of there was one a few weeks ago about like spinach can now send emails. I'm like fuck off! Like who is doing this and why? I'm sick of the sort of Silicon Valley driven position of futures being something that you can kind of techno fit and create and craft through ingenuity and entrepreneurship. And it's just like just fuck off um because i do think that actually does lead us towards space fascism right like fascists in space we've got fucking zuckerberg doing something i don't know he tweeted the other day something ominous working on a new project i hope it's death (laughs) 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 but then you know people like elon musk being like he keeps coming out every week it's i I don't know if you um um there's like a subreddit on on like futurology that i look at sometimes just because it makes me angry and i enjoy the rage it's a kind of energetic form of rage but (laughs) They keep pushing forward things like he's come out and says something again about his SpaceX missions to Mars. And he's just basically the the statement is like, we're going to be in Mars in three years. Also, some of you will die. (laughs) (laughs) But that's a risk I'm willing to take. Or it's like you could come to Mars if you want to be like a surf forever. Like it's just like a lot of really weird elements where in order to kind of occupy this space future, you have to, yeah, replicate these like horrendous fascist colonial impulses that have already kind of prohibited futures in very damaging ways. I hate space bros. Basically. At the risk of sounding like a space fascist, 
<laughs> okay, so I'm not for spinach sending emails, but what I am for are the TikTok accounts of pets that have been given the buttons so they can start talking. There's a cat on TikTok that when he wants its own attention, just pushes the button that says, lady, lady. It's great. <laughs> I am pro fluid pets. We are becoming Pavlov's dogs in that circumstance. That cat is making its owner a Pavlovian dog. Yes. That's fine by me. What I love is that, that she she obviously set the phrase as well. She could have been like, you know, what's your name? Karen. I don't know. Like, <laughs> but no, she's like, I would like you to address me as lady. <laughs> hey, lady. <laughs> the cat's called Steve as well. And I love that. And it's just like, lady, snuggle, Steve. It's so good. <laughs> Everybody wants to be a cat. Because the cat's the only cat. Who can pass judgment on Derrida's naked body? We're thinking about speculative fiction, and my completely uneducated in this area response to it. But like, there's always some sort of link to the present moment. You can't have speculative fiction without a link to the present. So just turning that around and thinking about the present that seems like fiction. You know, I think we're all living through this sort of weird ass moment where like current affairs. They're just like what. I mean, that was there was definitely a few times when basically Black Mirror stopped being like innovative, and I was like, "Babe, catch up! Like, what are you doing?" <laughs> so I don't know. Can you think of any moments when you've been struck by that in terms of where the future has already arrived? Have you been like, "Oh, is this fiction for my thesis, or am I reading the newspaper?" Oh man. Um. I mean, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah. There's like a fair bit of content. So I don't understand TikTok at all, right? And basically, I think TikTok is like, is like that, where I'm like, no, mate, I'm sorry. This is, this is just, this is too much future for me. <laughs> I am yeah, I think, I think it's when I, when I see young people do stuff and say things, and I'm like, I realize that do stuff and say things is not very clear, but like, I don't know, like the way that they can share content and share things with each other and, and like, they just interact a whole other way. And I know that I now sound like someone's gran. Um, I'm like 27. I, this shouldn't be like, I shouldn't be like this, but I am. I'm basically a Luddite. I work in AI and like spec fic and I'm a Luddite. Yeah, I just think like the way, like those those things with babies where they like, they can't, they like, they, they touch magazines and they're like, my iPad's broken. And I'm like, oh my <laughs> God, what? Um, <laughs> so that kind of thing is what, like where I think like the future is now. But then, like, when I've been off Twitter for long enough, then I feel like I live, like, in a normal world, in, like, a quiet place. And I go outside. Just any time that I spend outside, I'm like, oh, this could be any time in the world. Like, this is lovely. So, yeah. So I think when I'm engaging with tech, I feel very, like, futuristic. And when I'm not, then I'm like, oh, the world is good and pure. Um <laughs> Not that tech doesn't do great things, but yeah, I think mm. I think definitely. I mean, there's like really interesting instances of tech preceding events. So mm. uh, the, like the one that comes to mind for me and that I think people really enjoy is um, like H.G. Wells kind of invents time as a fourth dimension, where he like articulates time as a fourth dimension, like 10 years before the theory of relativity becomes a thing. Edward Bellamy like writes about the concept of a credit card way before credit. Like this is in like 17 something. 
um way before credit cards are a thing obviously because credit cards are recent yeah i mean i think like going through the pandemic the way that we teach i mean we're all experiencing this right like the way that we're teaching on zoom and like i use google docs and survey monkey and like a whole bunch of different things to like as tools to teach with and i'm like shit this is the future because this is like i would not have been able to do this a year ago or i will i would have because mm-hmm. i did but a year and a year and a month ago <laughs> i would not have been able to do this yeah. What is Zoom? Like a year, a year and a bit ago, I'd never heard of fucking Zoom. Yeah. Like, you know what I've I found myself doing is that even though I use Zoom all the time, I still refer to it as Skype. Like I'm, like, I'm just gonna have a quick Skype no. uh, with this person, well, and I'm like, no, yeah. Skype is dead. But that's because yeah. what I grew up with is Skype, or you ever send Messenger, you just wrong. Despite its raging Orientalism, Styx's Mister Roboto brackets Domo Arigato close brackets raises some interesting points about the ethical considerations of prolonging life via technological intervention. But okay, so you don't understand TikTok, fair play. Do you understand cryptocurrency? Because your current research is all about, well, the thing that you sent through to us was this kind of overlap between speculative fiction and speculative finance, which is actually something that I've also been thinking about a lot recently. And basically it boils down to what the fuck is blockchain? What is Bitcoin? I don't understand them. I read about it all the time and nothing makes it clearer. Yeah. Non-fungible tokens, NFTs, like fucking Kings of Leon coming out and being like, yeah, we're going to sell our record on NFT. I'm like, I don't know what that means. I'm not down with the music, let alone the currency anymore. Yeah. As a literary scholar, I choose to believe that these are fiction. Well, I mean, the economy is a fiction, right? And that's kind of where I'm starting at. That's my starting point. I'm like, we have all agreed that money on this card means that I can have this coffee. And that is a collective fiction. And I am like, and I just extrapolate that to Bitcoin where I'm like, we've all agreed. I don't know if you guys have seen there's like a new crypto called Cum Rocket. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. It's real. It's exploding. I've seen Dogecoin and I was like, millennials really need to start shutting down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fucking, I can have cheeseburger coin. Yeah, it's, no, it's literally like Cum Rocket is doing well because it's called Cum Rocket. And I'm like, are you joking? I love it. Invest, invest in Cum Rocket. Right? I mean, I'm kind of like, ooh, I can invest. <laughs> yeah, so it is. It's all a fiction, right? And it just, we're all like convincing each other that, that this stuff works. And if we stopped convincing each other, if we stopped believing, everything would fall apart, which is what happens when like big crashes take place. When everyone's like, oh, I don't believe this anymore. And then, poof, there's no money. Right, so is that literally like, so if the next time we have a financial crash, if we just like clap, would that help? Like, you know, with like fairies? Yeah, you can revive a fairy. I do believe in Bitcoin. I do, I do. I do believe believe in the global stability of the financial market. I do, I do. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think clapping will, well, I mean, clapping famously makes people feel better and works to uh oh yes you're right it's better than getting a raise yeah. or you know being paid com- like for what yeah, your I work mean, is yeah, tapping I is basically enough. a re- replacement for for money so if you clap mm. enough you someone will give you bitcoin i think um, okay in terms of we, then like, sorry i just really quickly it's slight, a slight it's problematic is clapping i was gonna make a joke clapping ableist alex i'm done I think my joke was going to be better. Mine was going to be about whether or not clapping in terms of like a, a currency exchange, are thoughts and prayers higher value than clapping? Well, it depends because anyone can clap, but you kind of have to pretend to believe in something to offer prayers. 
Oh, okay. So an AI can clap, but they can't pray. Oh. You can have that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm convinced people just do object-oriented ontology to make, like, stupid points, then just go, oh. (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting, so one of the things as well that you were talking about earlier, so one of the novels you're working on is, at the moment, is Kim Stanley Robinson's New York 2140, which I have had... I bought it at Christmas being like, yeah, I'm going to have a nice little read, love a bit of sci-fi, love a bit of spec fic. And I just got so bored, um, <laughs> which is perhaps controversial. I should probably give it another go. But what I find really interesting about that text is how, right, so the, um, what's one of those lines in it, which is like the future of New York was underwater and it was better that way. And there's something kind of interesting going on with like sea level rise and speculative finance. I don't know if you've thought about this at all, but like I'm always overcome by like why there are so many watery metaphors when it comes to financial uh, markets or futures. You know, this idea of like trickle down economics, flows of capital, streams, uh, frozen assets, bubbles, liquidity. Right? Uh, What's going on with water and finance? Why is money so wet? Um, I think because it's it can it's a, a liquid and therefore can kind of move to fill any container. And uh, I think that's how people think about money. Like money can make any problem go away. Or like people think that obviously it's not true, but. Similarly, it can change value all the fucking time. Yeah. And it can be contaminated. So they're very similar things. Um, Money is also a fiction. um, And so is water. Uh, (laughs) No, that's not true. (laughs) Everyone believes in water. Um, Quick clap for water, everybody. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) Um, yeah, I know. I think you're absolutely right. There is something weird there. And I think it's to do with the fact that most of our kind of uh, trading capitals are built on waterways and that capitalism is kind of tied into water-based trade. So like the capitalist system, um, like, you know, built off the back of um, like various kinds of uh, colonialisms, uh, slave trade, uh, the like trade of natural resources, all of which required the sea mm-hmm. and uh, water courses. Like, there are very, very few major cities in the world that aren't built on water, and they're usually built around gold if they are built on water courses. Uh, Johannesburg is mm-hmm. one, so Joburg is a, a gold city, a gold-based city, a goli. But yeah, I mean, if you think about like New York, think about London, uh, think about Paris, these are all, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Beijing, they're all, wait, hang on. Beijing is the Beijing is not a good example because Beijing is inland. But <laughs> it's the only one that is Tokyo. Go for Tokyo. Okay, thank you. Shanghai has waterways. Shanghai has Shanghai waterways. Is yeah, one that I was thinking of. Hong Kong. Yeah, that one other city in China. Oh my god. I <laughs> or to go to China. Someone should pay me to do that. Oh, uh, too soon, Louise. Too soon. No. I was supposed to be in China for six months of this fellowship. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. That's so. That's cool. fine. But yeah, you were making erudite points that we derailed again. <laughs> of course we did. They, they weren't that erudite. I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking on the fly here, but I think, I think I'm onto something. Uh, at least I hope I yeah, am, because that abstract that I sent you, I have to give that paper in three weeks. So. Yeah, that sounds super cool. <laughs> if in doubt, just be like, clap everyone, believe in my paper. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm like, mm, can I write it on the plane? Fuck, there, there's no plane. Uh, oh, that has honestly that has been such an issue <laughs> recently with the spate of stupid things I said I would do being like yeah no I'll totally do that I can write that paper and do that conference and now I have just been in my house and haven't had a train ride or a plane ride or a cafe to go and mm-hmm. like bash it out mm-hmm. in and it's um, honestly my uh, 
my outputs have seriously suffered because of this so object-oriented ontology also be like speaking of outputs the android stream of breath Chelsea's face is just sort of like what the fuck is this (laughs) so this did come from actually a little bit of reading the things that um one of your articles that you pe- you sent through to us or one of the, the posts that you sent through about how in some of the research you've done into machine learning that there's the Lovelace test, which is something about requiring machines to produce things that are new, surprising and valuable. And I just saw that and I was like, oh my God, can a machine write my ref outputs for me? Because that would be incredible. Because that sounds very much like original contribution to knowledge. Yes, exactly. I mean, maybe. Yeah, we, we posed a similar question recently um, on another project I ran called Will Machines Make Us Laugh? Where we asked comedians to like reflect on whether or not AI would like support or like replace them, basically. And most people felt like it would definitely support because um, like you can get some great gags out of like typing part of your joke into Google. So like there's definitely going to be opportunities for more of that. And that's definitely mm-hmm. like a unique contribution to knowledge, right? Lols, lols are a unique contribution to knowledge and pleasure. But uh, yeah, again, I think it's about narrative. I mean, they might be able to write someone's ref output, but not yours. Uh, Because I'm I'm so unique. (laughs) Love it. You know, obviously they'd be able to write like a white man's output for ref. because of the data set. I want to hear a little bit more slightly about this kind of the, the can the machines learn to live, laugh, love. So like, what did you find from that in terms of creating comedy through an algorithm, uh, asking for a friend <laughs> who may or may not be a co-host? <laughs> can machines write comedy? I mean, c- kind of, they can kind of do jokes. It's a bit like, they come out a little bit like those like kids make jokes that kids make jokes like twitter account which is mm-hmm. which is not funny at all but is funny because it's like kids being like why did the chicken cross the road because it grew legs and drove a car and it's like what so many <laughs> things have happened here my favorite joke when i was a child slash quite recently no it was when i was like a proper like a child i used to tell it all the time was um what do you call a cat without a collar the man hasn't bind it yet i was three I was going to say, lady. <laughs> lady. Lady. <laughs> lady. Uh, yeah, I was like three. Apparently, I used to tell it all the time and like roll around on the floor laughing and my parents just had to join in. Otherwise, I'd have a tantrum. <laughs> and you're considering Amazing. a career in comedy and is, is your strategy going to be... I have done stand-up, yeah. And I, I that one I haven't done live yet. I think you should bring it back. I think I'm going to bring it back. I think it might might close off your set. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that terrible joke. I'm sorry. I killed everything. I I killed the conversation. Fucking fun sponge in the corner. Terrible. Terrible. But yeah, I mean, basically, we always round off by saying, is there anything you would like to plug? We will add links and things to the episode when it goes out in show notes. So if you're working on anything, you've got things coming out, coming up. Uh, now's the time to go full gold digger. Oh, yeah. And just... Uh... And I am good at that. So yeah, my, my podcast is Narrative Futures, and it doesn't have its own Twitter page because it's piggybacking on the Futures Thinking Twitter page. So it's at Think Futures Now on twitter and then what else do i do (laughs) start tiktok um yeah i'm not on tiktok i enjoy how you started the podcast being like i'm so productive i do all the things now you're like 
I've got nothing. <laughs> Just look at my website. It's full of shit. I write things. I think about things. I make podcasts sometimes. I am, yeah, involved in a whole bunch of different things. Writers make worlds. Is pretty cool. <laughs> this is so specific. Sorry, I love it. I do things like I write, I read, I make podcasts. Like sometimes I eat food. Yeah, I cook <laughs> myself. Um, yeah. <laughs> Occasionally I bathe. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to plug. I think Narrative Futures, I think Sound of Contagion, which is www.soundofcontagion.com. Mm. And then, yeah, my website will have whatever I do next on it. Yeah, there's some interesting short film stuff coming out with the Sound of Contagion project. We're working on storyboarding at the moment, so it's going to be crazy and wild and strange. And of course, your postdoc, U to U. Yeah, and then my postdoc will be U to U um, at the uh, University of Life. So look forward to publishing out of that. And good luck with your coil. There we and go. And I get my coil. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's, what, that's all the, the next steps for me. Plugging, <laughs> plugging A literal the plug. Morena coil. <laughs> On that note, that is perfect. We've been Long My Praxis. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, a five-star output deserves five-star reviews. No reviewer two comments, please. Shout out to our biggest fan and most consistent listener, my mother, Faye. You can get in touch with us by emailing longmypraxis at gmail.com or finding us on Twitter at longmypraxis. Today's episode was brought to you by the letter AI. And the number the long 2020. Our shape this week is Ooh. Remember to tell your friends with apologies for a cross posting. Bye.